Hello and welcome to Brain Stories. I'm Selena Ray and I'm here with my co-host Caswell Barry. On Brain Stories, we aim to provide a behind-the-scenes profile of the latest and greatest work in neuroscience, highlighting the stories and the scientists who are making the field tick. We don't just ask about the science, we ask about how the scientists got to where they are today and where they think their field is going in the future. Today we're lucky to be joined by Benedetto De Martino. Um, and so Dr. Martino is a cognitive neuroscientist who works in the field of decision making and neuroeconomics. Originally from Italy, he did his PhD at UCL, um, where he began to study human decision making and he integrated economic models with tools for cognitive neuroscience with the aim of developing a more realistic account of economic behavior. In 2008, he was awarded a welcome postdoctoral fellowship. Uh, that was with Daniel Kahneman as mentor, and he worked for two years at the Department of Economics at Caltech with Colin Camarera. Uh, and now he's back at the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience, where he is a group leader of the decision-making group. Benedetto, hello. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Hello, everybody. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Fantastic. So we normally start by asking you to sort of give us an overview of what you're working on, or maybe to tell us about how you got into this field, because I know that you've got a story you've uh, been itching to tell us. So I'm going to let you do that first. Yeah. First of all, I think he, you will immediately detect uh, from my accent, I'm from Italy. And, uh, you yeah, know, I lived here for 16 years or more, almost 20, and my accent hasn't gone. That's probably the biggest mystery of neuroscience. And um, so when I, I actually studied molecular biology at the university, my background is quite different and I've been changing often and this has always been a constant of my life, my scientific life, always been switching to amongst different fields. And um, um, eventually I landed uh, my PhD at, um, in uh, human cognitive neuroscience at Quiz Square. Um, where I, as often happens with the PhD, you just end up in a topic that you haven't really thought massively about. So I was, I remember at the time studying attention. Um, I wasn't really interested much in this topic. And uh, I remember one summer watching the movie with the uh, beautiful mind that was the biography of John Nash and being very fascinated by the story. Very nice movie. I mean, uh, um, I won't spoil it, but there are some nice surprises in that movie. Um, that is the story of this mathematician that eventually got the Nobel Prize for Economics. So, so then after that, I just read this biography. And while I was on uh, doing, I, I have the tendency of going to rabbit hole. When I found something was interesting, I start to look more and more. And I went on the website of the Nobel Academy, and, and uh, I kind of bumped in the biography of Daniel Kahneman, that because of my study, I didn't know who he was, and ended up to be a psychologist that won a Nobel Prize for economics. So that was very interesting and fascinating. And then I discovered this phenomenon of the framing effect, and I realized there was a very common effect, is the fact that it often just reframing an option, it completely changed the decision in a very systematic way. And because it was so common, I was really could surprised. You, could you give us an example of that, yeah. just for people who don't know what it is? Yeah, I mean, I can give you many examples, but the one I like often to do is uh, imagine that you are on a diet and you go at the supermarket and you see, um, I don't know, some meat and they say 70% fat free. That sounds very appealing, that piece of meat. But if you were eating 30% full fat, uh, you probably decided to don't buy it. It's very remarkable. And the fact that the human 
And I mean, this example is very uh, toy one, but there are uh, a systematic aspect in this decision in the sense that often when options are framed in a positive gain, um, in a gain domain, um, people tend to be what they call the risk adverse. And then when it's uh, framed the same option in a negative domain, people start to be risk seeking. So the interesting thing is that happen is very systematic and it seems to affect uh, everybody. And no matter how expert you are, the fascinating things that they prove they also medical doctor they, with many years of experience. If a patient case was described in odds of mortality, they were making one decision. If it was described in odds of survival rate, it was making a very different decision. So I decided to study that uh, the, the neural basis of that. And, uh, and there was one uh, um, situation in which my supervisor wasn't very happy I was going to move from. So he told me I could do that in my free time. And uh, if you have done a PhD, you realize there isn't much free time there. But <laughs> nevertheless, I was uh, so uh, fascinated by this topic that I threw myself into it. And I threw myself with the naiveness of somebody that doesn't know anything. And probably that helped me because uh, um, those framing effects have always been studied between subjects. means you ask one group one question, one group another question. And they thought if you ask, the, but that are not really good to, to study fMRI because for fMRI, we need an effect that we call within subject. So it means asking the same question to one person over and over again. And because we need data, we need to repeat these questions so many times that everybody in the field uh, they knew the, the topic better than me. They knew that it wouldn't be possible. If you keep asking the same question, people would realize. And uh, because I was kind of naive, I just come up with the, a different way to ask this question. And uh, the story goes that we published this paper. Um, uh, it, it was one of these studies, it was fantastic, in which you predict some things. We predict the involvement of amygdala in this effect. And I can explain and elaborate more at the end, but we found exactly what we, we, we were predicting. Things almost never happen in science. And then we wrote a, a report, we published it. And as I told you, I watched the movie in summer. By spring of the year after, it was published in, in a very like, uh, um, large journal. And, uh, um, and then a few months after, I got an email from Kahneman himself congratulating with me about the study and saying that the, the, the way I came up to elicit this framing set was the most simple, but nevertheless, they always missed it because they, you know, they, over, were, they were overthinking too much the problem. And then he also said he was going to meet me for a coffee in London, that imagine you're a PhD student in your first years and you get an email uh, from a Nobel Prize winner. Uh, it, it made me all shake and think. And since then, I interact with him quite a bit. Uh, and yeah, and then the rest is history. I don't know. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. I can't imagine, like, your yeah. heart must have uh, yeah. jumped a million beats when you saw that email pop up. Yeah, I remember I'd booked an holiday at the time he was coming in London. I cancelled it. <laughs> Because uh, uh, it was like his wife, that is a very famous psychologist, was unfortunately, she passed away a few years ago, Annie Trisman, was receiving an honorary, she's English, she was English, and she was receiving an honorary prize in, in London. He was accompanying her and he visited with her. And I remember every conversation I had with Kahneman, another really strange thing is he wanted to be called Danny. 
And that was making me feel really, really strange to write an email, Dear Danny, to a Nobel Prize winner. But apparently, this is the name he goes with, with the people he know. And um, every time I had a conversation with him, I needed the nap after because they were so intense. Uh, there wasn't chit chat going on. You know, it wasn't just like, how, how are you? I think it was just like, why you did that? Why this, this thing? And he's, uh, no matter his age, his mind is so sharp. That was super, super challenging. And uh, another thing that Danny used to do that I found it very stressful, that when I was telling him something, it wasn't say, ah, oh, yes, no. It was like, let me think. And then there was like three minutes of silence <laughs> in which I was totally embarrassed in which he was thinking. And then often it was like, I disagree. And then it was like, oh. <laughs> but it was a very, very good training for a PhD student, yeah. This sounds like the, the, you know, this sounds like a, a dream PhD, almost like a Hollywood conception of a PhD. And I should add, exactly. come to UCL, all PhDs are like this. No. Um, yeah. yeah. How, how did your how did your background in molecular biology set you up for that? I mean, this is this is almost yeah, the stuff different. of nightmares, right? You go from one yeah. field which you thought you understood to being yeah. grilled yeah. on the spot by a Nobel Prize winner who pauses for three minutes yeah. in a subject. About economics. Yeah. I mean, it was already my second jump because first jump moving from, uh, as everybody knows, molecular biology, cognitive neuroscience are pretty far away. And then from cognitive neuroscience to economics and uh, never took on a course of psychologists. I mean, one thing that made me feel better when I, I think I've read in an interview of Kahneman, they... He never took a single class of economics and he got a Nobel Prize in economics. So, so this is something that make uh, for the student that are listening to us. It's really important. Don't get too much uh, yourself uh, stuck into a box because you've done certain things. You need to do other, those other things. I mean, Caswell, to answer your question, the move came mostly from the fact that uh, I was completely useless with my hands in a, in a wet lab. And uh, everybody was telling me, but I was just being super stubborn and just saying, you know, I can do it. I'm very, very clumsy as a person. And as you know, because, you know, you, some of these kind of delicate hands procedure, they're really difficult if you're like this. And the luck was that the welcome program that I joined, because I was determined to carry on doing that. In fact, I joined this PhD because my plan was to join the lab of Claudio Stern in uh, UCL and doing developmental neurobiology. Um, but then after the, my program, there was a welcome PhD program. The unfortunately now is shut down, but it was one of the best program in the count. Forced you to do a rotation between three different labs and they were forcing you that the lab shouldn't overlapping in team. So I, I put one rotation in this cognitive lab, mostly because I it was so different. It was fun for three months to see. And then I realized after being three months in Claudio Lab, that was great, but I was spending all my night opening uh, um, like chicken eggs and breaking yolk and uh, with my, my clumsy hand. I mean, I, I actually have done a little stand-up comedy in which I talk about that. There are a few funny stories there as well. It reminds me of a story of another Nobel Prize winner, um, people who joined John O'Keefe's lab, allegedly, at one point, he would ask them to stand there, their hand flat, and look to see if it shook. 
And if they did, he was like, you'll never be able to make tetrodes. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's, that's just one thing that I think there is a lesson in there. And the lesson in there is uh, you can't be good at everything. And you sometimes you need to negotiate between what you like and your ability. I think I would have been a very unsuccessful and frustrated PhD student in a molecular biology lab. While when I switched to the things, I was much more happy. And so I think one important lesson here is when you're young, look yourself in the mirror and trying to negotiate what you like and what things you're good at it. Because there are some things you might be more better at it and, and you should work on those one as well. Um, I mean, it doesn't mean you don't need to improve things. You're not good at it. But there is no point of being massively stubborn on something. And the economics actually came to the fact that deeply down in me, there was always the feeling that I wanted to do humanities with the scientific tools. And uh, that was really my biggest, uh, since I was in high school, I was a very pretentious young boy reading philosophy and things. Not very, at the time, I wasn't very good at maths because I found that the way they teach maths is extremely boring, was just like, like puzzle, like doing exercise. But I really like the big question, but also I, I like the, the, the rigor of science to address this big question. And I could find in this combination that I could like investigate the question that matter for society, but with some more like uh, accurate tool, maybe you know, using scientific method. I think it's a really important lesson. And I think as you've outlined, how valuable these schemes are with rotations because you don't know until you have an opportunity to try it either what you will be good and, and maybe, you know, where some unexpected talents might lie. Mm -hmm. um, so you published this paper in your PhD, you got in contact with this Nobel Prize winner and then what came and next? Then, you and went then it was the a US. downward trajectory. From, <laughs> you know, that, that was, I always say that that was my first paper and it was published in Science. And they, 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 people just say, oh, that's great. In reality, because I also studied that this phenomenon is called a reference point, is that's the worst possible reference point that you expect a certain type of thing and life then is going to be just a long chain of disappointment. Um, no, I'm, I'm, jo <laughs> I'm joking. After that paper, I think I could convince my PhD advisor that uh, the topic was worthwhile to investigate. And um, I carried on working in the area of research. So at the time, now my research agenda has changed a bit, but at the time I was uh, uh, very much interested. I found that, that, that all this program that was initiated by Kahneman and Tversky about bias in decision-making, while it was really cool, it felt a bit like a zoo of curiosity, right? So you had on one side this rational model of economics that makes very strict assumption is very consistent, but it doesn't match a lot of behavior. And then on the other side, you had a lot of strange behavior that you call with all different names, uh, endowment effect, framing effect, sunk cost. There was this kind of a collection of uh, anomalies. And that was uh, because, again, I think, see, you bring with you certain things. Because of my, my training in more like hard science, was very unsatisfactory, that, because it felt like, you know, maybe if you are purely a psychologist, that's fine. You know, you're describing this behavior, but I wanted a unifying framework that did uh, make those uh, things, rather than being anomaly, being like a window 
on a deeper process that we are missing. And um, so my aim there was trying to use this one as a window into, and the main theme was, look, a lot of these things, they look like a bias because we are putting people in this very strange situation, but the human brain has evolved to solve other type of problem. And this actually is very well optimized for that. So there, there, I think if you could just summarize the theme of my research at that time was, um, look, rather their, their mistakes are feature of the behavior. It's not just like some kind of like people being stupid and just be not very attentive and just making this mistake. And the neuro is a good support to that because if you have an entire neural system dedicated and then producing that effect is very unlikely. And, and then it, was, it can also be proven in other way, but that, that was the idea. So is the implication that things like, so you named a few things like the framing effect, sunk costs. Are, are there beneficial side effects to those then? Is that what you're saying? Like there's a reason why you should stick to something or? Yeah, very much so. And I think now that we know that, um, because first, uh, this is, for example, a limitation of economics that didn't really think that there is multiple value system. There is always, the economics almost feels that there is this kind of uh, what we call now in neuroscience, a model-based system, and that's everything. But we know that evolution has uh, endowed us with very other different type of value system. And one of these is the Pavlovian system. And the Pavlovian system is a system in which you don't really need to learn the value. You know, just a baby doesn't need to learn the milk is as high value and loud noise have low value. These are like hardwire in your gene. Now, this system is useful to humans as well. It's very inflexible, but because it doesn't need the learning, because, you know, there are things you can't really learn by experience. You can't really learn that jumping from a, from a building is bad through simple reinforcement learning because you can do just once and then the learning is ended. So you want a system that really like tells you approach, reward, and avoid threat. And what we proved with those line of research was that those framing effect came to the fact that while you are computing a value with all your high-level system, you still have this uh, very basic uh, mechanism of just say, go for a, for, a, for a reward and avoid a threat. And, uh, and this kicks in and interferes with the other system and gives you a behavior that looks really strange, but in reality, you don't want to take it off that system. We, for example, found that the people affected by autism, they tend to be much more consistent in this type of decision. So if that is only the standard to measure the quality, but we know that those people, that comes to a price in other aspects of their life, the inability to adapt their decision to the context. So I think the mistake was to set the bar on the theory the mistake, and then call it everything was falling outside the theory as irrational, as a bias, as a mistake, without really understanding why those behavior were uh, arising. Uh, yeah. And so can you tell us a little bit about what your lab is working on now and how, like, what are the most exciting yeah. questions in your area at the yeah. moment? Yeah. 
So I did, I went through, so I, I've also, um, yeah, one other aspect. So, so the, the first things I was saying, uh, just to finish that things about uh, watching the movie of A Beautiful Mind. No, 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 yeah, it's linked. The We're thing. still on the intro. Is when, when you're looking for, uh, for question, I often tell to my student and think, you know, when I say just where question came from, question often don't come from to keep rereading the most specialized article in your field. It, it, they came from, I, sometimes they say, read Madame Bovary. You, you might kind of like, in particular, if you have the luck that your field of knowledge is trying to understand humans, what better playground than stories to understand humans? So get inspiration from everywhere. But because of this, the, the flip side of me being like this, they get curious by many, many different things all the time. And it's not an advice uh, because I'm, I'm apparently science rather prefer having one person does one thing for all his life than uh, just keep changing. Um, but um, at one point I started, uh, I think uh, with another, uh, normally this course in your program, a very good friend of mine, C. Fleming, uh, we started to have this very interesting conversation about confidence into value. So that was a, another big theme in my lab. With uh, I done in collaboration with Steve, that is exceptional. Uh, is an exceptional scientist and also an exceptional person to work with. Um, we we started to investigate how much of insight you have into this decision process, and that was been a big a big team because we really, from my perspective, from a more economics perspective, and then there's also another things. If you interact with economists, you start to think in a slightly different way. Remember, you're never going to become an expert to everything, but you will have friends that are experts in these things. So, so when I have a question of economics, I just send an email to Pietro or Andrea. They are two colleagues of mine. They are professor of economics in Princeton and in Bologna. And I just ask their advice and thing. And uh, since then, the most recent things has been keeping me awake and thinking a lot about this uh, problem has been... Um, a lot of work, in, in, I, we have done quite a lot of work also at Boundary with artificial intelligence. I know it's a topic is dear to Caswell and thing. And, um, and we got like some grant from uh, Google DeepMind and things to study this fundamental problem that most of these approach are very powerful, but they require that you always give this very simple numerical reward at the end of some things in order to learn even this very sophisticated system they always need to add a number a point and i just realized that that is in a way happening also in all these experiments we are making we always have this simple numerical reward that you add at the end of an action you get five point three dollar but this is not life doesn't have tag or label so when i make decision in the world it's not like they just i, I grab these and they just some things pop up just you want ten point well done so my, my question is how we navigate in a world in which we need to learn value, but value is something that got to be constructed by us as well. So there is this idea that um, something is not... So I, I felt that the field has been too much focusing in equating value to this hedonic reward. But what I'm actually now interested in understanding is more like value as a concept as a concept to achieve a goal. So for example, I is ready, you can't see, but if I have like uh, 
I don't know, a telephone as a value as a telephone. But imagine I got stuck in this room and I need to break the glass. Now, the value of this phone will be how hard is it in breaking? So I, I'm very much interested in understanding how this constructive aspect of value happens. That's by no means easy. It's very difficult. <laughs> And could I ask, and please bear in mind that I'm a molecular neuroscientist, I'm a molecular biologist. I have yeah. a steady hand. I did the test as we were talking <laughs> yes. about it earlier. Yeah. Um, so forgive me for clumsy phrasing, but how is value shaped by things like risk involved or how hard you have to work, work to achieve something of value? Does that factor in? Yeah, I mean, it does, uh, but we need to understand before algorithmically, and this is an award that's very important to me, algorithmically, how what it is value in the first place. And I think we still are fairly confused about the whole thing. And the reason why I'm saying algorithmically is because I found, again, probably because coming from molecular biology myself and thing, I found one thing when I came into this field very unsatisfactory, when people were saying this region is involved with the theory of mind. I always wonder how a neuron that is involved look like. It's like, hello, I'm really involved. So uh, that kind of uh, very superficial type of description felt always incredibly unsatisfactory. There is a region in the brain we all know is involved with value computation. It's called ventromedial prefrontal cortex. But I really would like to know what algorithm they are instantiating those bunch of neuron and uh, um, then uh, as you are saying into value uh, value is a very strange object because it's something that doesn't exist outside in the external world but also you you tag the external world with it and so the all these like internal aspects like your sense of risk and things they should contribute to it i often do an example in my lecture i show a, a painting asking how people value their painting. And often it's a nice painting with a mom with a little baby. And, uh, you know, quite a lot of few people, they, they think they value it. And then I ask how much you value them if you would sell this painting. And, you know, some people think it's, it will sell for a lot. Others say it's nice, but it might not sell for a lot. And then I show that painting was painted by Adolf Hitler. And then just giving this little, little bit of information, there is a gigantic remapping of this value. Now, that painting, first, doesn't seem so cute anymore. And second, you realize they will sell for a fortune. So that's one aspect of value that doesn't seem to be in any other dom domain of neuroscience, in which a teensy bit of information can completely re rearrange it. In perception, everything is much more stable. You can't really rearrange gigantically a perceptual uh, uh, representation as you can do with a value representation. I've heard you, and so I imagine something that's related to this, this thing I've heard you talk about before, because I've heard you talk about sort of economic bubbles and how you can even, as in things where you've got like, you know, the famous tulip bulbs, where the, the value of tulip bulbs just went up because more people wanted them and there was almost sort of a self-fulfilling mm. or, or a feedback mm. cycle of some sort. Yeah. Is, is that true? Is that is that something you can... Is that something we measure and quantify? Yeah, I think I think it, yeah, that's a good example, and it didn't come to me before. That, I think it's also a good example to the question that uh, uh, some, some one of you were asking me about the um, 
the fact that it could be advantages some things. So there is this phenomenon, then Caswell said, that is happening over and over again in the financial market. And then suddenly an asset got crazily. And the reason why we, we talk about Unibubble, because it was one of the first examples that was recorded, that, that were on record. And they got to a point that the tulip bulb was the value of an house in Amsterdam. It was a specific type of tulip bulb, not everybody, uh, every tulip bulb. But, um, and then in a matter of a few weeks, the price collapsed. And then as keeping going on with house bubble and so on, and recently we still don't know. The problem is, uh, see, take Bitcoin. People ask me, is Bitcoin a bubble? I, the problem is with bubble, you don't know they are bubble until they crash. Because things could be genuinely have changed value, right? Electricity couldn't be a bubble because we all need electricity. So the value of electricity has gone up and is for a good reason. Same thing with computer. So Bitcoin could be a bubble, could not be a bubble if it's going to be the currency that replaces everything. But the interesting things that uh, another guy that actually happened to be the guy that won the Nobel Prize with Kahneman, it was called Vernon Smith, proved that even in a control setting like a lab in which you make people trading assets that you know the price, every now and then, for an unexplicable reason, those prices start to inflate. So uh, you generate this bubble. And in that case, you can tell it's a bubble because you know the, the fundamental value and you know that these things is skyrocketing on the top of the fundamental value. So we did an experiment. It was one of the most difficult and tedious experiment I ever made and I will never made it again uh, to trying to just uh, test uh, what was happening in the head of people when they were uh, like um, trading in this bubble context. And our main finding was First, yes, there was an inflation of value representation. But the cool things was that we found a very interesting behavioral correlation that we would never have found it without the neural link. So this is also another good point. Uh, often in order to understand a purely behavioral mechanism, the neural signal can actually point you in the right direction. We found that there was a very strong correlation. There's nothing to do with behavior, but was inspired by see certain type of signal in the brain between theory of mind and susceptibility to ride this bubble. And we found something surprising that theory of mind, uh, for people that never heard of it, is the ability that allows us to put ourselves in the shoes of somebody else, right? So it's a very good ability. But what we found was that people have high theory of mind that were inflating the price more. And what we speculated was that those people, rather than concentrating on the objective value of the asset, were actually integrating in their value representation what other people were, were maybe thinking. So just say, I know this is not very valuable, but I think that Caswell will think this is very valuable. Therefore, I think I'm better off buying because Caswell is going to buy it from me. So you have a, a paradoxical situation in which the theory of mind is one of the most adaptive aspects of our brain, but then it might put us in danger to be susceptible to this bubble situation when you are working in a finance environment. Okay, then you can say, okay, let's put as a trader, people have no theory of mind. It's not even a solution that, because then there is other study that shows that if there are inside the trader in those markets, People with theory of mind are better to spot them. So there isn't a, a solution that fits every problem. 
but we got to understand those mechanisms. So I, I don't know. Was it clear? I mean, this is a very technical thing. So I'm trying to keep the, the word uh, like no, not, not technical. Fa- it's yeah. fascinating. Totally fascinating, actually. I, I had no idea about this. I just keep thinking of um, what's the what's the film with um, Blue Horseshoe loves Anacott Steel, the famous eighties. Yeah, like a wolf of Wall Street. Uh, uh, that's one of no. those. It's terrible. Okay. This is a terrible yeah. anecdote. Sorry, I, I, I should uh, <laughs> should be quiet. And let you talk about. So maybe no. we should sort of direct things uh, forwards a bit. Um, so where? So what do you think the future of this is? I mean, it seems that this field has many directions it could go in, and indeed there would be, you know, many industries interested in the sorts of, uh, mm. you know, the sorts of biases and how you might manage them mm. in humans. Uh, like what's you know what's next? What's the next big thing? I think I think a good way to answer this question is uh, what are the lesson I've learned in those years doing that. So first lesson was a lesson Kahneman already warned me when I was very young. By as a young people do, I ignore them um, this advice, and he said uh, I was saying, look, if we show this mechanism, we can convince economists that you know some of these. Uh, and he said, very cynically, I, I couldn't convince them uh, for like 20 years, you won't be able to. Um, however, be, besides the cynical things, the, there is some truth and also some not so true things. Because first of all, uh, Kahneman won a Nobel Prize for Economics. This is signed by economists. And more recently, there was Richard Taylor that was a person who worked with Kahneman and again won another Nobel Prize for Economics. So it's not true that economists are so insular to this new idea but what economists don't like and now i can't start to understand why they don't like that they don't like if you throw away one theory and you replace with nothing so we should do our homework a bit more and use this knowledge to build the theory that they can use because you can't just simply throw in the bin expected utility theory and replace with a plethora of bias they are no psychologists. They need to make a decision about how to change the interest rate and things. So they need the theory. So first direction, more theory. And more theory informed by the data. And they often say that the re- re- reproducibility crisis comes from mistaking the analysis and the experiment. In my opinion, comes from lack of theory. Because when you have a solid theory behind, things are more reprodu- um, There is easier, I can't pronounce that word, that they're able to be reproduced more easily. Um, so the other uh, things that uh, uh, I think another really interesting avenue for, so this is for the interaction with economists. The second things was like, uh, I also learned the lesson that those very complicated experiments, like the one of the financial bubble, they, they are interesting, but they don't make happy anybody because economists find them too simple and neuroscientists find them too complex. And everybody say interdisciplinary is great, but then trying to do it and you find trouble on both sides. So my advice as well is you can be as interdisciplinary as you want, but you need to decide which is the field in which you establish yourself and be a leader in that field and then talk with other people. And second, I mean, the third thing is like talk with friends. I mean, talk with people they know rather than assume you can know everything. And in more in general, where the field is going, I mean, at the moment there is a frenzy about artificial intelligence and all these things, and I think it's very promising, but we got to get serious in answering this big question of 
how the brain, it, I mean, we can converge to the same solution from very different aspects. Um, we are really need to figure it out how the brain learn with so little example, how the brain built its own value schedule. Um, these are all questions that uh, are still unanswered. And, uh, you know, I, I feel that, that that's a really fruitful area of research. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's cool doing interdisciplinary research and is, uh, and is cool uh, to find connection in things that are not the, the one you normally read in the paper uh, that you normally read. So it's good to read uh, everything. Yeah. Let's talk for a second something I think is important and I care a lot. And often people, um, you know, talk on Twitter about life balance and things. Uh, I think for me it's, it's stupid in the first place that this should be a question. Of course, your work is not your life and uh, you should have a lot of interest and hobby and you should work just the amount that you feel to work to it. And... Uh, my, my point is even stronger than that. That is from your own, because, you know, you are a human being, and I never think that I am a neuroscientist. I do neuroscience, but I do a lot of other things. So I have a lot of hobby, and I would encourage everybody to have hobby. I found that sometimes it's very frustrating when I ask a student, which, which are your hobby? And they just hear, yeah, like, watching movie or reading. I mean, that is all human beings should do that, but then um, find other things. But I think it will benefit your science. It will benefit your science because the worst mistake we can do as in the example of the curse of knowledge is just getting really stuck recursively in, in a topic and not seeing anything outside. Um, you know, now I'm reading a book about genetic of a population and, you know, reading the night, I'm having some ideas that seems completely crazy at the moment. But uh, God knows, maybe there is some things in there. And uh, I think if you don't live a balanced life, uh, in particular, if you want to study how the brain works and you don't let your brain live a normal life, uh, that would be very bad. Yeah. yeah. And so I think if I can just, uh, because you, you told me that a lot of students hear this podcast, there is no pride in saying that you don't sleep and you work all the time. It just shows how shallow you are as a person, if it's like, that's the, the answer. I love that. I think that's actually, of all the episodes we've recorded, this has been one of the most inspiring, just hearing how your career is shaped and actually the willingness to admit when something that you really thought you wanted to do was not right, the ability to be flexible. And I, you know, I completely agree that life is too short to work the whole time. Let's enjoy all of it and everything that life has to offer. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you so much for joining us. We're almost at the end of the interview now, but we have one question that we ask all of our guests, which is, could you tell us your favorite fact about the brain or something unusual about the brain that you find really fascinating? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you, you mentioned me that you were going to ask this question, made me think quite a bit. And uh, um, there are a lot of interesting facts. And, but the one I picked, uh, it seems, has nothing to do with the discussion we had today. One thing that really I was always kind of a puzzle me is this, uh, this fact that uh, we didn't have time to talk about that. But we really believe in neuroscience that the brain is a Bayesian machine. That means they integrate multiple evidence and multiple beliefs and update according to their uncertainty and so on. If you never heard about that, it's a fascinating thing. You should definitely 
go and check it out. But then there was always some things that always bothered me. And the fact that uh, when uh, you are looking at this by, by stable perception, uh, you might have seen those one in which could be a rabbit and a duck. It seems your brain is incapable to maintain those beliefs together. That goes completely against the idea that you, know, you maintain beliefs and update them. It seems your brain instead is much, much more somebody that does hypothesis testing. It just, it, it, the fact that the brain, brain can, in, the brain is so powerful, so flexible, is so everything. And then it can only entertain one hypothesis at the time about the world. To me, it's fascinating. I don't know why. I can easily imagine a machine that can entertain more than one hypothesis at a time. But I don't understand what is this big constraint that stuck our brain to, to live in one single hypothesis at the time. And uh, the fact that we know it doesn't help at all. And in a way, this is linked with those bias, because also in those high-level cognitive bias, the fact you know that you have a framing effect, it doesn't protect you from having it. And it feels the same things. The fact you know that there is a rabbit doesn't allow you to see it. Mm. And this for me is just bizarre, fascinating, and I don't have an answer for that. And I would like to, to know the answer, you know, before I kick the bucket. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you so much. That's, uh, I, I've got to agree with Selena. This has been utterly fascinating. And I don't think I've ever felt quite... And there wasn't even a banjo. I know, the I mean, banjo hasn't even... Yet. I haven't felt so inadequate. I need to sleep more, apparently. <laughs> uh, so that was a fantastic discussion. Thank you, Benedetto, for joining us on this episode of Brain Stories. See you all next time. We'd like to thank Matt Wakelin, Maya Sapir, and Trevor Smart for their roles in taking Brain Stories from an idea to a fully-fledged podcast. Follow us on Twitter at UCL Brain Stories for updates and information about the exciting forthcoming episodes. Thank you.